Well, good evening. It is, uh, it is such an exciting uh, time to be here. We have done this. This is our fourth year in a row. The first year we did this, uh, Pastor Chris and I got together and, and thought through what would be a cool topic or a person to focus in on. And when we started to talk about James, the brother of Christ. So the very first year, we did a whole five-week study on the person of, of, of James, who was the brother of Jesus, which was really, really cool. Then the next year, what we did was we looked at the reasons we have for believing in God. It's a little bit more of an apology focus. Then the third year, which was last year, we took a look at scripture, uh, canonicity, origin, uh, all of that good stuff. And, and really, we talked about whether or not scripture is still relevant for today. Does it have authority? Is it an errant? All of those really big ideas that are important to Christianity. And this year, uh, as we we're kind of thinking through some things, on my heart, personally, I wanted to have a little bit of time for us to come together and just to take a look at God himself. Uh, so, are there any theologians in the room? You better all raise your hands. Uh, I'm going to go through a couple of real quick things. Chris isn't here, but he usually does the intro for us, and he put down a couple things that he wanted to share, but next week he'll unpack them a little bit more. But one of the concepts that is important for us all to grasp is that everybody is a theologian. That doesn't mean we're all good theologians, but it does mean we are all theologians. Have you ever met a bad theologian? Have you ever been a bad theologian? Uh-huh, we all have. There, it, isn't, it isn't like we wake up and we have great theology. Uh, theology takes time. It takes practice. It's just like when you get to know somebody. You don't know them very well at first. And there's, there's a, a process of study and revelation. And it's the same thing when we're talking about studying and knowing God. Isn't that true? It, it, not one of us wakes up having a, having a good, true concept of God. Now, we can see that God exists. We can look in nature. We can notice his power. We can notice a lot of different things, but we don't have an intimate knowledge of him as a person. And when we come to the scriptures, that's where we start to get an idea of what he's like as a person. But also beyond that, we have the Holy Spirit, and he's speaking to us, revealing things to us. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to reveal things that are, uh, you know, scripture and that we can write down and say, oh, this is equal to this. No, he's going to speak to our hearts to help us recognize the truth that's already present in his word. Okay, But that's part of that process of getting to know God. Who is God? So everyone is a theologian. Not all theologies are equal. And theology seeks to understand God's being, God's nature, and God's relationship to the world. And that's really what we're going to take a look at today. Uh, and actually throughout this whole study, so it's only a four-week study, this is, this is some good stuff. It's very hard to, to really distill it down into an hour, an hour and a half and do that only four times. Um, this summer, I had uh, two theology classes at, at Biola, and they were rough in the sense that we did uh, three days in a row for, um, from 8 to 8, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., three days in a row, plus one class, and just going and going and going. And, and I love my professor to death, but he didn't have any visuals. <laughs> it was just rough, and it's great. But when you come to a topic like this, it's like there's so many places we could go. God is so big. There's so much to him. There's so much detail. So where should we start? Well, 
today we're going to start with the first topic, which is uh, the aseity of God. And, and, and you'll, you'll kind of think, what is that word? And we'll talk a little bit about that. But it really has to do with God's self-existence. And that's, that's noted here. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Next week, we will get into the doctrine of the Trinity, which is a very important topic. Uh, it's one of those things that sets us apart from a lot of other religions out there that have some sort of a theology, some sort of concept of what God is like. But that one there is if you don't hold that one, you can't, you can't technically call yourself a Christian, okay? There's a lot of other things you can call yourself, but you can't call yourself a Christian technically if you don't believe in the Trinity. Then we'll talk about the holiness of God, and we'll talk about the mercy of God. And I'm really excited about getting to the mercy of God. These first three will be a little heavy, but I want to end on a good, nice, soft, loving note. And, and what, why, that, why is that important? And we'll explore this when we get there, but just as a preface, God, as we know him, as he's revealed in scripture, stands alone as a merciful God. You will not find another merciful God in the world religions out there. You always see this God who is, who is exacting justice and is always uh, judging, and there, there's, there's this, you, know, you can't approach him, you have to have mediates and all these different things. But in Christianity, we have a God of mercy. And we'll take a look at what that means. And that really is one of God's attributes, if you will, uh, one of his characteristics that sets him apart from all the other world religions. And thankfully, it's true. And we'll talk more about that as we get going. So have in your mind that everyone is a theologian. Not all theologies are equal. Theology seeks to understand God's being, God's nature, and God's relationship to the world. So what I want us to have in our hearts and our minds as we really start to unpack this, this evening is when we talk about theology, everyone have a pretty good concept of what the word theology is? It really is a study of God. You have theos, and then you have that ology. You see biology, which would be the study of life. Geology, the study of the earth, right? Theology, your subject is God. Can you think of any more complex or exhaustive subject? Back in the old days, uh, theology was what we call the queen of the sciences, and I won't take much time with this, but this is an important concept to have. What we had was we have theology at the center, and then you would have spokes coming off of that, and you could then you know, talk about uh, different things, anthropology, all, all sorts of different things, but all of it centered around theology. What we see nowadays is an inverse of that, and really anthropology, the study of man, is at the center. And then maybe you have a spoke over here, and in that spoke we call it religion, and then a subspoke of that would then be theology. And it gets really weird really quick. Um, but to, to really unpack this, let's just keep it simple. Theology seeks to understand who God is. All theologies that are out there really seek to understand who God is. Now, I want to talk about this right here, religion. Some of you may, may have you know, thoughts about religion. I have thoughts about religion. Um, have you ever heard it said that Religion is man's attempt to get to God, but theology is, is the inverse of that, or Christianity is that God coming towards man. And there's nothing wrong with that idea. But I do want to open your minds a little bit. Religion, technically speaking, is another framework from which we understand God. So don't, don't just, when you hear religion, don't just instantly say, oh, that's all man-made stuff. There is a system to it. Now, 
my, my undergrad degree is, is a Bachelor of Science in religion. All of it was theology, though. But there's just a technical way of looking at it. So you have world religions, but every religion will have a theology. Does that make sense? Have that in your mind. If someone says they're religious, that's a systematic way of understanding theology. And not all of them are equal, all right? But today we'll take a look at what it means to know our God, to know our faith, and to know ourselves. When you start to think about who God is, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, is he real? If God is not real, then what is theology? It's meaningless, isn't it? It's a fairy tale. So we start with the premise, God is real. We also go from there that he is real, but he is also knowable. We can know him. Because isn't it quite possible that God could be real, but he could be so distant from us that we'd have no access to him? Isn't isn't that a possibility? But what we have in Christian theology is the concept that God is both real and he's knowable. He has revealed himself to us, and there are things that we can know about him. Now, what does that mean? Well, that goes into talking about knowing our faith. Can you defend your faith? What, what makes you a Christian? Even beyond that, you can start to break it down smaller, and, and I'm not going to literally ask for an answer from the audience, but I want to put it in your mind and, and, and push you a little bit. Could you, if I asked you to, come up here with me and, and dis- explain the difference between Christianity and Mormonism? or Christianity in the Jehovah's Witness, or Christianity in, 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 in the Muslim faith, right? Could, could you do that? Take it another step. Could you step up here and explain the difference between Baptists, Presbyterians, free will Baptists, go down the list, all, all you want to. Have you ever thought about that? I'm a, I say sometimes I'm a struggling Baptist. I have no idea how I got into the Baptist um, denomination, but here I am. And it's great, uh, but I'll dig up all these old Puritans and stuff, and I'm heavily influenced by the Presbyterians, although I don't agree with the Presbyterians on all of their theology. I don't, forgive me, I, I don't want to baptize babies. There's a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me, have great arguments for it. I am for full immersion, so don't, don't worry about that. I love, the, I love the Presbyterians, but that's something to me that I'm saying, mm, I'm going to side with the Baptist on that one. Also, with church governance, how do we govern our church body? Those are big differences, and they have to do with your theology. How do you see God, and how do you understand Scripture in order that you would then practice that, put that faith into practice? So when we say theology, there is a lot there. And when we say theology, never divorce theology from practice because you do what you believe. You do what you believe. And that's why it's important to have correct beliefs because correct beliefs lead to correct actions. And if your theology is true, to the degree it's true, to that degree it reflects God. And to the degree it's false, it's actually idolatry. (laughs) Do you, you get that? Because we can have a concept of who God is and it truly isn't who he is and we can worship that image. But if that image is not who God actually is, we are worshiping a false God. And that's something we all have to watch out for because we have that capacity within us to look at God and to say, here's what I would like you to be like. Here's a palatable version of you that fits my worldview. So that's my God. Have you, ever, have you ever heard anyone say, the God I serve wouldn't do that. The God I serve wouldn't. 
What are, you, what are you doing when you say those things? You are saying, God, break off a piece and say, I'll keep this. Oh, I liked that one. Here we go. Ooh, I don't like that one. That judgment stuff, that wrath stuff, all that. Get rid of all of that. He's a loving God. My God is a loving God. What are you doing when you do that? You're building an idol. So let's start out strong. Don't do that. <laughs> we should try as, as, as much as God enables us to grow in our faith, to grow in our knowledge of God, because to the degree that our, that our faith is founded in untrue beliefs, to that degree we are idolatrous. We are worshiping a false god. Now, I'm, I'm not speaking from the scripture here. This is just Rob Lewis's opinion, so you can take it and throw it away if you would like. I don't believe that God is looking down at, at us and saying, you don't have it perfectly right, therefore I reject you, because none of us have it perfectly right. There's not a single person in this world whose theology is perfect. We all have weird things we believe, and that's why we come to the Scripture to have the Scripture search us. We come to the Scriptures to have the Scripture purify our, and test our beliefs and change us. Isn't that true? If you've got it all together all, already, then, then, then you don't need to come to the Word. You come to the Word because we need to have our thoughts and our minds purified, corrected. And that's why the Scripture says the Scripture is profitable for all of those things, is it not? So have that in your heart and your mind as we get going here. Theology is all about knowing our God, but it's also about knowing our faith. And then it, talks, then it has something to say about knowing who we are personally. And when we say personally, I want you to understand this concept. We started to draw a little bit over here because before, back in the good old days, anthropology, the study of man, would have been a branch off of theology, and theology would have grounded man's understanding of himself. Which means, when we say, who am I? That's a big philosophical question. Who am I? We have to say, well, where, where did I come from? All of those things, right? But what the biblical concept of man is, is that we are made in God's image, all right? Well, that, that means something. It means a lot. But, the, but when you flip it and you say, no, we start with man, and from man, then we have religion, and a subset of religion is theology, now you start to say things like this, man didn't make God, but God was made by man. You see that difference? Well, what does that mean about man? What does that make man? Makes man the author of God. Makes man autonomous. But also, you know what it does? It makes man meaningless. How does it make man meaningless? Because it means that there's no higher meaning or purpose. There's no greater value. You literally are carbon and chemicals and uh, just doing your chemical reaction dance, drag on your belly as long as you can until you die, and then the universe dies a heat death and everyone is forgotten. That's, that's the concept. If there isn't a spiritual reality, that's the other alternative. Do you get that? So there's, when we say... How do I know myself in light of knowing God? Well, this is a very important thing because when your anthropology is rooted in theology, then you have a high value of yourself. And that doesn't mean overly, but you have a right valuing of yourself, which means you recognize that you're made in the image of God, which means you have intrinsic worth, which means murdering another man or woman is bad objectively. Because they have intrinsic worth. Why? Because they are made in the image of God. Do you see that? But if you get rid of that and all we are is carbon and chemicals, it's the same as squashing a cockroach. 
just some carbon that just needs to be transformed into another shape, right? So far, so good. Everyone okay? We haven't even got going. All right, so what I want us to, 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 to have is that preface. There's a lot to it. Um, I want you to hear from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is, is considered one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century. Lots and lots of books produced by him. Um, and Crossway put together this short little video. They put together several different videos. But I want you to hear J.I. Packer's challenge as we get going tonight. Faith is the basis of Christian life. But the problem nowadays is that people don't know what faith is. The church is in trouble. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? The trouble is that we are not taking our God seriously enough. What's the proof of that? Why that we're not taking his word seriously enough? And we're not making sure that our faith matches the teaching of scripture. We don't even seem to be interested in finding out. That's not good enough. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, but do you know what Christian truth really is? Could you explain your faith? Do you base it on the Bible? Could you defend it against challenges? Faith is the most momentous reality that I can think of. We need to know what we believe. We need to be able to defend it when it's challenged. And we need to have reason for relying on it as a basis for our lives. So, with that thought in mind, I do want you to respond. Do you feel like you have room for improvement in your theology? Amen. We do, don't we? I love Packer's challenge, and when I first saw that video, I thought, you are so right, sir. You are so right. Shame on us for not taking God's word seriously. So I want to challenge us tonight, and through this whole study, have in your heart and your mind that it is your duty to know your God. And how do you know your God? You know your God through how he's revealed himself in Scripture. So let us strive to know the Word of God. Let us strive to submit to the Word of God and continue to grow in our faith. So let's get started here. Let's start with our first topic. We want to know who is God, what is he like. Well, there's a couple of things I want to really highlight tonight. One, he's eternal. And you're going to see why that's important. You might think, why would you start with that? Hold on, to your, hold on to your seat, because that's a big one. He's also necessary. Now you're like, okay, I skipped philosophy 101. What, do, what does that have to do with anything? You will see. And he's uncreated. This one probably is easiest to grasp. God is uncreated, which is good, right? Because if he was created, then who created God? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard that question? Who created God? God's so great. Where'd he come from? 
We're going to actually wrestle with that question tonight. But let's get started with the concept of God's eternality. When, when we start to talk about God's eternal nature, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. And, and what we see here in Exodus chapter 3 is the burning bush scenario where Moses is really, uh, you know, communicating with the Lord in a, in a kind of a weird way. Moses is out there and he sees this bush that's, that's burning up uh, and, and, and it wasn't being consumed. And, and it, says, it says in verse... In verse 2, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. But you look over here at verse 14, actually back up to 13, and, and, and the concept was Moses was saying, if I go and I tell these people, who, who am I going to say sent me? So here's the reply. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. That is such an incredible concept. When we start to talk about who God is, we have to start with the premise that he is eternal, which means he has no beginning and he has no end. And we have scriptural basis for this right here. When he says, I am, we have this concept of Moses and the Lord having this conversation. But in that, when the burning bush scenario was happening, Moses wanted to know who this God was and he says, my name is I am. I am. Well, what do we do with that? Um, I think it's really important to take a look at, at another way of kind of wrapping our minds around this. Louis Burkhoff is another uh, theologian. He says this, he is the eternal I am. His eternity may be defined as that perfection of God whereby he is elevated above all temporal limits and all successions of moments and possesses the whole of his existence into one indivisible present. So to help, to help you visualize this, think about this. How is our life clicked off? How are we measured? Well, we're measured on a sliding scale, aren't we? We've got time, and we've got the future, okay? And then I'm going to go this way, and we have the past. Every moment is clicked off on this timeline. You may be right here, okay? But seconds are passing, hours are passing, months are passing, years are passing, right? We live in a successive uh, temporal world where we see things that didn't exist become into the world and they begin to exist. We begin to exist. We will die and in one way not exist. We are eternal. We will live on. But there's a way in which when we die, you won't be on the face of the earth. You can go anywhere and look for you, but you won't be there. Your body may be buried somewhere, but you won't be there. So we have this temporal element, but when we say, how is God eternal? Well, that means that he is 
above, and we say it's elevated above all temporal limits and all successions of moments, and possesses the whole of his existence into one indivisible present. What we have to look at here, and you can't draw it, 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 simply, it simply can't be drawn, but I am attempt to do this, is that we would say this is God's eternal present. This is his view. He is living in all of this now. There is no past to God. There is no future to God. He isn't waiting for minutes to click off. He's not waiting for next year. And that's really hard for us to wrap our heads around because that's something that is not uh, experienced in our lives. We see everything as these successive temporal things, right? Click, click, click. Now you get deep into physics and, and, and even the concept of time gets messed up. But for our everyday Newtonian experiences, time is clicking off at a pretty consistent rate, isn't it? I can, I can tell you to show up next Wednesday at 6 p.m. and you know what I'm talking about. And you'll get it right, won't you? But God is outside of that. So what does that mean and why is that important? Well, it has to do with all the other things. It has to do with what we're about to talk about, and that is his necessary existence. If he has no beginning and has no end, and he is not defined by time, but he transcends time, then that means that he had no beginning, and he has no end. He has to exist. He can't not exist. He has always existed. But also, then we start to talk about, well, who made him? Well, if he has no past, <laughs> there wasn't a time before God. That means he is the uncreated creator. And we'll talk through that here in just a second. But let's talk through a couple of examples to help us wrap our minds around this. There's two types of existence in the universe. You really only have two options. And um, I used to have fun with some Mormon friends of mine who used to come and visit me when I lived in the apartments uh, over here uh, off 145th. And they would come in and they would hang out with me and um, week after week they would come until finally they just kind of, I guess, figured this, you know, this guy's not going to convert or whatever. Um, but they would bring a different elder with them every time. And, and it was, I, I was, I loved it. And we got to the point where they would come in and they knew my house and I'd sit down on my couch and I'd make some root beer for them. We'd look at my guns, we'd talk and like, it was kind of cool. Um, but we kept talking about their beliefs. And at first um, I was a little bit not necessarily dishonest, but held my cards close to my chest, didn't really let them know that I knew anything about any of it. And I'd be like, well, yeah, tell me, tell me about this stuff. That sounds real interesting. <laughs> and and, and I, I would kind of reel them in, and I felt a little bit bad afterwards, but, but they were super nice to me. But I kept coming back to this. This is one of the things that I, that I would not let them up on. And, it, and I'm not trying to give you tactics to debate Mormons. You should lovingly discuss these things with them. But if you want something that is important in that conversation, they believe that God was once a man, okay? And we as men can become God, all right? Well, what does that mean? That means that there's a logical chain that goes back. Well, where did that God come from? Because he didn't always exist. He was created by some other God. Do you get that? Well, you got to look in the Pearl of Great Price. 
It's not actually, that's their, that's their, just in case anyone's wondering, that's not a book of the Bible. That's a book of, the, of, of Mormon. They got the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, uh, all that good stuff. But they have scriptural, their, and I'm not talking about Mormonism. So let me stop. <laughs> Don't derail me. <laughs> that's not in scripture. <laughs> what we have to look at is that there are only two possibilities in the universe. And this is one of the things I kept telling them. I said, you can only have two possible existences. One, you exist necessarily, which means you never began to exist. You have always existed. Do we have any good examples of that in, in this physical universe? No. And that's why we would call this is part of one of God's incommunicable attributes. Don't worry about that word. It's just a fancy way of saying he has something that we don't have. There's something that he's got that there's no analogy in the known universe. There's nothing that we can look at. The closest thing we can think of is like, uh, like a number, like a logical concept, like what created the number seven. Well, there's no physical relationship to that, but still that's not even a good thing because there could be, you get really deep into stuff. The basic idea is that for everything we can recognize, you either have always existed or at some point in time you began to exist. And what we would say is one, existing necessarily means you can't fail to exist, you've always existed, or you exist in a contingent relationship. All right, so there's two little pictures up there. So there's a car. Um, pretty much every one of us got here by a car of some sort, right? We were a truck, whatever, all right, a vehicle. Has that vehicle always existed? No, it hasn't. It, it, it has a manufacture date, doesn't it? There's a time where all the parts were assembled and it was rolled off the assembly line and we say, that's a 1987 or that's a 2017. Why does, why does that matter? Well, because it means that before that, that thing didn't exist. It exists in a contingent manner, which means it depends on something previous or prior to its existence that explains its existence now. Okay? Anything you look at, this building, all right? Has this, has this building always existed? No. Okay, well, then you can start to ask yourself, well, what, what caused this, this building to exist? Well, there's, a, there's a, big, a big chain that we could look at, right? Um, there's, there's lots of, I mean, you look at this podium, right? All of these things probably didn't exist 100 years ago, and they probably won't exist 1,000 years from now. If, if the Lord doesn't come back in 1,000 years from now, do you think this thing's going to be around? No, they didn't nearly seal it well enough. It's going to be gone, isn't it? So you have two options. Either you exist necessarily, you have no beginning, you have no end, you can't not exist, or you have a contingent existence, which means at some point in time you began to exist and you don't have to exist. Now, take you and me. Every one of us has a birthday, don't we? Uh, I love this. Sometimes when people are, are talking about um, can you prove something, you know, uh, you know, definitively? And it's like, well, you can't prove anything definitively. And let me start with your birthday. How do you know that's when you were born? On the testimony of reliable sources. Because <laughs> you weren't really cognitively there. So prove to me you were born, in my case, February 5th, 1986. I can't. I can say a little piece of paper. It looks like some baby footprints on it. My parents said that that was what... But I have to trust their word because I can't put it together. I wasn't cognitively there. So 
What we all have to recognize is that we owe our existence to something outside of us. Let's, let's just take, take that logically. Where did we come from? And I'm not getting into the birds and bees conversation here. But you have parents, don't you? Do they have parents? Do they have parents and parents and parents and parents? Right? Didn't, didn't pop out of you know, nowhere. You have something outside of yourself that explains your existence. We have never come across a human being who didn't have parents of some sort. Okay? And I'm not getting into like test tube stuff because even them, we have to have cells that come from somewhere else and you got the DNA and all that good stuff. Everyone has a cause for their existence. What does that mean? It means that if you exist in the category of contingency, it means that you have a big causal chain that you can go back, 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 back. So let's take this building. This building hasn't always existed. It probably won't exist a thousand years from now, but let's talk about when it came into existence. What caused it to, to exist? That's a big question, isn't it? What caused this building to exist? It would be really, really a gross oversimplification to say, well, we bought it. Okay, if you brought a wheelbarrow full of money and dumped it out in the field, does the building grow out of that? No. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You got to have some engineers, some architects. Uh, they'll get together and do all that. Okay, that's great. Then what? Because <laughs> they usually don't produce anything. Maybe a digital print or a blueprint, but they're not physically building anything. Well, oh, okay, we got to get a contractor. Do you see? Well, then where's the con what's the contractor? Does the contractor show up and they're like, toolbox, poof, a building. No, they've got to do what? They've got subcontractors, and then there's material. Where did the material come from? Oh, the steel beams. They came from a forgery, right? Some, some forges out there pounding that steel out. Great. Well, where did they get the material? Do you see how complex all of this gets very, very quickly? And anything you take in this universe has a chain that you can follow back and to a point where you have to kind of stop because you can't see it anymore. But with God, there is no causal chain. Why? Because there was no before he existed. There's nothing outside of him that existed before him that explains why he exists now. When he says to Moses, I am, that's the eternal present existence. I don't need anyone to create me. There's never been a time before me. Do you get that? That is incredible. So what that means, and this, let's just tie that loop in. Why would, I, why would I bother with my Mormon friends on this? Because if they believe that their God was once a man, he's got a whole lot of history, causal history, which by definition means you can't be God. Because God, by definition, is eternal and exists necessarily. Because he is the hinge pin that everything else has its existence. And scripture tells us that, doesn't it? By him and through him, everything that exists was, exist was created by him, right? And for him, all that good stuff. Colossians, you see. So this is the point we must always look at. In order to technically be God, doesn't matter what religion you come from, doesn't matter what your theology is, technically speaking, if you call it God, it exists necessarily. It, has, it can't have a prior cause to it. 
because then that thing is God. Does that make sense? I know it's very complicated and you'll have to wrestle with it a little bit. But have that in your mind. There's contingent existence. There's necessary existence. But let's just ask, is it possible that the world will cease to exist? Big picture. Will this world go away one day? Right? Yep. Okay. What made God? Let's just, let's just, yep. Yeah. So let's just, let's just, I've already told you the answer, but I want to hear a little bit. What made God? What would you say? You can respond. Nothing made God. Okay, so God popped out of nothing. Very good, very good. Excellent, and in truth. Very good, very good. Uh huh. Yes, great, excellent. Have that burned in our minds. I was sitting in a lunchroom one time with a guy, and he kept asking me, What made God? But we get locked so much into this contingent relationship thing. It's hard to. We can understand it partially, but exhaustively we won't be able to. But when you ever have this question posed to you, what made God say he did not, he was never created? Which is the next question. Well, what was there before God existed? This is actually, I've heard a lot of Christians, not other religions, people in my congregation, I'm not saying names, but people come up to me and say, what was there before God existed? What would you say to that? What was there before God existed? Well, it's not even nothing. There was no before God existed, right? It's, it's, it's assuming something that's not true. You're assuming there was a before. So don't say nothing. That, that's, that's our natural response. Nothing was there. Well, then that's like, well, there was nothing, and then God came out of nothing. No, there never was a before God existed. Why? Because all eternity past is within his eternal presence. <laughs> Does that make sense? There was not a before God. He exists eternally. He exists necessarily. Because if you get rid of God, then everything that exists in this box doesn't exist anymore because it is relying on that causal chain to go back to him. And if there's ever a point where he didn't exist, then what started all of this? You're in big trouble. Go to the building analogy. You never get to the contractors. <laughs> you never get to the engineers, the architect. You never get to this, because there's this big causal chain, and if it doesn't rest in someone who exists necessarily, it never even gets started. Never even gets started. Okay, so... This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection and most pure spirit, invisible, without body. This is very, very important for us to have, wrap our minds around. He is living. He's not, God is not a force. He's, he is a person, okay? Uh, and he's an infinite being, pure in spirit. Now, We'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about the Trinity next week. There is a sense in which God is flesh because Jesus is the eternal God-man, so we have to wrestle with that. But generally speaking, high view here, God is spirit, which means he's not dependent on the physical world. He's not some atoms and you know this material thing because then you'd have to say, well, where did those come from? <laughs> He exists, he's, he's, he transcends the material world that he created. Does that make sense? So God is true spirit, pure, indivisible, without body. And this is another thing that makes Christians unique among many other religions. 
particularly Mormonism, the Mormons believe that God the Father has a body as we have. That's a big part of what they believe. Which, what would we say to them? We would say, what created that body? <laughs> Where did that body, because that body is made of stuff. That stuff doesn't have to exist. It's contingent. Then you have this big causal chain. Well, oh, well, he was created by another God way back then, who was also a man. Exactly. And you have an infinite regress that, you, that, that gets, is, you're just in too much trouble by that point. So let's talk a little bit more. God is self-existent. That is, he has the ground of his existence in himself. The idea of self-existence was generally expressed by the term eseatas, meaning self-originated or independence. Um, so some of the theologians like to use the word independence, which means God is independent from nature, independent from his creation. All right, so he's, he's, he's removed in a sense that he's independent from it. He doesn't rely on it for his existence. So that's where we, when we say the aseity of God, we are literally saying that he is self-existent. Now, let me be very clear with this, and we're, and we're, we're picking up good speed here. When we say self-existence, I'm just going to represent it with S-E, that is not, that is not the same as self-created. Can anyone tell me why self-creation isn't a good choice? When we say he's independent or that his aseity, when we talk about his aseity, why would we never say that he was self-created? Yeah. You would have to exist before you existed. In order to create yourself, <laughs> you would have to exist in order to create. That is a, that's illogical, isn't it? So never, ever, never say that. Never say God created himself, because that's illogical. But you can be self-existent, and that's perfectly logical, and that in yourself you have your existence. Now, we can't, because we're contingent beings. We're a different species, if you will. But God has existed for all eternity. There is, there's never been a time where he did not exist. Therefore, to say he's self-created would go in the face of that. So we never want to say that. And that's why when we look at, he says, I am, that's it. I am. This isn't I created, I am. <laughs> I am, okay? So let's hear a little bit from uh, R.C. Sproul on this point. We have the idea of self-existence or what we call in theology the concept of aseity. When I see that word on a blackboard, when I see it in a textbook, I know that the vast majority of people in the pew have never heard of the word. And it's so obscure and esoteric, they don't care about hearing about the word. But I have to tell you, honestly and personally, I see that word and I get chills up my spine because in that one little word is captured all of the glory of the perfection of God's being. That what makes God different from you and different from me and different from the stars, the earthquakes, and any creaturely thing is that God and God alone has a seity. God and God alone exists by His own 
power. So we have to have this concept in our hearts and our minds when we say, who is God? There's a lot of other things that we can say about God, but I want you to have in your heart and in your mind this evening that God is, and at a minimal, have, have, have an understanding of these three concepts, that he's eternal, that he's necessary, and that he's uncreated, all right? So those are the three things I really want you to take away from this. Now, we're going to explore a couple other ideas uh, the rest of the evening, but if you remember nothing else, remember those three concepts. So just for a quick minute, I want to open it up to any questions before we move on. We've got three minor sections left to go, or two minor sections left to go. I want to open it up. Anyone have any questions or comments related to these three topics? Uh, eternality? Yes, Ben. Oof, okay. Well, so, so Ben says, what is, what is the, the relationship between God's eternality, as we've sketched it here, and the concept of eternal life? Is that, is that what you said? The promise of eternal life. That's good. That's really good. What I would say to that is that he, he's able to give us that because he has no end. He exists necessarily. He is life. And in everything else that has life, we owe our existence to him. There is no life outside of God. He is the root. He is the well. He is the source. The su- he's, he's, he's where life comes from. So I would say, in response to that, that he alone is able to grant eternal life. <laughs> Great point. Because he is life. There was never a time before him, and there never will be a time where he doesn't exist, which means us contingent beings who are created in his image who are enabled through his power to live forever from here on out, we can do that because it's guaranteed in his existence as a necessary eternal being. That's a very good point, Ben. Thank you very much for bringing that up. Anybody else have any questions or comments on this, on this topic? Oh. Yeah, I usually don't. Um... <laughs> <laughs> incarnation uh boy that's an interesting idea I, I i gracefully have had a few conversations with friends who who my co-workers um i work in a, in a big company and i travel all over and so i've been able to run into people from all sorts of different backgrounds and i've had some conversations with people on this topic the problem is one uh if we start with the premise that this is the revealed word of God, okay, start there. Now, people are going to say, well, you're starting there because blah, 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 blah. Okay, but do you, if you believe that this is the revealed word of God, if that's your starting place, there's nothing about reincarnation in here. Okay, there's, that's never part of the plan. If, if you have to go further than that, which I'm sure you will, but I would argue that in your system, this is where we start. This is where we get any concept of the afterlife because you don't get any concept of the afterlife from nature itself. Okay, so if we just said, let's take, let's take examples from nature. Science is good, but science only can talk about what's in the box, not what's outside of the box. Are there any examples in nature <laughs> of something dying and coming back as something else? No. Okay, well, there's that. Well, then we say, okay, well, then let's go to the supernatural world. 
what would have to be driving that? There would have to be some sense of agency that's causing reincarnation. As far as we can see, that's the only way that that would work. Things don't spontaneously regenerate as something else. Well, then you have to say, well, who's doing that and what are you led to? You have to then go to some sacred text or some guru and start to, to start to look at that. So usually I don't go into that very far um, because what I'm, but what I'm defending and what I want to talk about is the revealed word of God here. We could talk about the authenticity and the accuracy of those other sacred texts, but you really, when you start doing that, you're, in a, you're going in a deep dive. Um, but I usually tell my friends, you, you have a problem when you start appealing to those types of things. Uh, and one, that there's, there's, there's an, is an eternal hopelessness in it, actually. And, and there's also a social element to it. So there's one thing that I, that I think is worth mentioning. Sometimes we do a lot of work to try to convince people that Christianity is true. And there's, we should do that. I'm an apologist. We, we should do that. But there's also a point where we should try to help people see why they would want Christianity to be true. Why, what, is, why, what, am I, what am I saying? Keller puts it very well. He says, there's some things that we can point to that make Christianity worth wanting. Like a couple of questions. Where do we get our sense of purpose from? Christianity has a good answer for that. Meaning, value, hope, beauty, justice. When you start answering those questions, Christianity has good responses for those. Those other world religions, including reincarnation, they don't answer those questions well because usually you get reincarnated based on your performance. And that's what actually drives some of the social weird stuff that happens in these caste systems is if you get born poor and you get, you're born into poverty, actually a lot of the people who are in the upper class look at you and say, that's right, you get what you deserve because in a past life you weren't a very good person. So they won't even help them because that's karma. It's working itself out. Don't mess with it. And that's why we have to do a little bit of, spend a little bit of time talking about why would we want Christianity to be true? Because I think it answers those questions of meaning, hope, value, beauty, justice, much better. Yes, sir? How do you deal with God relative to a Big Bang Theory? Big Bang, um, Ben, you can jump in any time if you want to on this one, too. Big Bang Theory, in my mind, uh, you, might, you guys might fire me after this, but that's okay. I have no problem with Big Bang Theory as long as, and we'll, we'll, we'll probably have to get off this here in a second. I have no problem with Big Bang Theory as long as it's explained well. Now, what do you, what do you mean by that? Big Bang Theory can be used as something that says, here is uh, an explanation for the origin of the universe that mean, makes God unnecessary. Okay? That, if you're doing that, then I'm going to argue with you that that's not what you get out of Big Bang cosmology. What you get out of Big Bang cosmology is the universe has a beginning. And actually, when you look at it, that was a big deal. Why? Because all the physicists back in the day were looking at this and saying, there's this steady state, the universe has always existed. It was really easy to get away from God and a need for God if this, everything's just been here in different forms, right? Because it exists necessarily. It's not contingent. It doesn't have a beginning. Wow, okay. So even Einstein, he, he, he was working out his math, and he, ha he came up with this, this uh, cosmological uh, you know, little 
appendix, if you will, to some of his formulas so that it would make all the math work out right, and Ben probably could talk to that better than I could. But here's the problem. When Hubble started to look at deep space and seeing red shifts, and you start to pick up Doppler effect, and you start, well, what does that mean? Well, you can rewind all of that. So Big Bang cosmology, as it's understood in that way, means that there was a finite beginning to the universe, which then implies what? <laughs> you have to have a cause for it. So I'm comfortable with Big Bang cosmology as long as you're talking about it in that way. If you try to use it as some natural uh, you know, singularity and there's no explanation for how all this matter compacted in this really, really tight thing and blew up, because you're already, in my opinion, borrowing some things, which are contingent things. And you don't get contingent things without a cause. You always have to have an explanation for contingent things. So I personally am okay with, with Big Bang cosmology. If that's the way God chose to start this whole thing, I'm okay with that. Um, I, I love talking about that stuff, and sometimes that's a foot into the door to talk about, see, that doesn't even get you away from needing God either, right? So that would be a short answer to that. Ben, do you want to... Did you have a question? Okay. <laughs> Ben's our resident mathematician, so if you need help with your homework. <laughs> any, any other questions along this topic? Okay, let's, let's move on. Just a couple of other sections I want to look at here, and then we'll finish up. So remember, we are trying to ground this in the Word. This is not a circular argument, but this is what we believe is the revealed Word of God. God is telling us things about Himself. Many of you have already alluded to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We suppose in our Christian theology that God existed before all of this existed. He is the cause for its existence because, as we just talked about with Big Bang cosmology and, and the origin of the universe, it had to have a beginning. It needed a cause. Well, Genesis already tells us. And I know it's kind of funny. Sometimes it's like, Genesis, Genesis already explained it. What, what are we doing here? I love science, and we should, we should strive, but there is a sense in, uh, in which we have to look at the Scripture, and if we truly believe this is the Word of God, He's not going to reveal everything about nature to us in this. That's not the point of this book. But it is really interesting when you look at things like Genesis 1-1, and you start to say, hmm, makes sense. Makes sense from what we can see, even. All right? Our common sense experience says that things don't come into existence out of nothing. That doesn't happen in our common sense experience. And more could be said about that. But have that in your heart and your mind. Genesis opens up with a presupposition. God exists, and he's the author of everything else, which means he exists necessarily, and all the contingent things owe his existence to him. He's uncreated, but he's the uncreated creator. Psalms 90, 1 through 2 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Scriptures replete with examples of God testifying to us, telling us, revealing to us his nature. Part of his nature is that he is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He exists necessarily, which means all the contingent things follow back up to him. And he's uncreated. And you know what? It's, when you read the scripture, I don't have them here, but you, you kind of see that God, God like, 
has a little bit of a sense of humor in some ways when he's like, he's like, yeah, you go out in the forest and you, top, you chop down a tree and out of part of it, you make a god for yourself. Now the other part, you make dinner. You heat your dinner up with it. Where, where, where's your god at, right? Oh, cool. You got to carry your god around because it can't walk. Oh, baby god. That's, I mean, I think of the god like, what are you guys doing? He, he, he is the only true God from everlasting to everlasting. There are no other gods. Done. Well, well, why does this matter? I think that there's some importance here that needs to be drawn out with the concept of one true God as Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Okay, so let's talk about, talk, talk about this a little bit more. What, is this, what does this mean? Well, let's talk about the heresy section here. There are many gods. That's what we call polytheism. What's wrong with this philosophy? Just, just on what we've talked about tonight, what is wrong with polytheism? Okay, okay. It's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? Well, Scripture, for one, says that the Lord our God is one. So we've already, if, we're, if we're looking at this as a revelation, but okay, don't, don't you know, bootstrap that in. Let's just talk about it. W- what do we have? Well, polytheism says that there's lots and lots of gods, but when you actually dig into it, you do have an element of someone owing their existence to someone else. It isn't as if they've got this concept of all of these gods exist eternally, necessary, and are uncreated. When you get into it, you start to see that there is a causal chain with a lot of them. There's, there's more problems we could talk about. We don't have time, and it gets a little bit too complex for, for this setting to talk about why it, why it doesn't make sense to have multiple gods who are all uh, self-existent, necessary, uncreated, all these things. It gets, it gets to be a big, weird mess. But first and foremost, just recognize the concept that there can be only one true God when these gods concede, owing their existence to someone else. But there's an, there's even there's an even there's an even bigger picture to this, okay? And 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 it goes kind of in line with two and three. So let's take them one by one. So you can earn godship. Who believes this and what is wrong with this view? Anybody? Okay, well, Mormon, Mormon doctrine would argue that, that you can earn godship. There's also a concept of, man, it's a big word, but modalistic monarchianism, and, and, and you, you start to look, I think I'm going to get into that more next week. I don't have it on here. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but this is important. If you think about this, it's, it's this idea that you weren't God, but through your merit, you can become God. Well, what's wrong with that? What, what do we require in order to technically call anything God? What are the three things we've talked about tonight? What do you need to be? Eternal. Are you eternal? Uh, okay, you're disqualified. Next. Necessary. Can you fail to exist? Yes, because there was a time when you didn't exist. You're unqualified. Three, uncreated. uncreated. Were you created? <laughs> yes. 
Those three pillars right there disqualify anything that is not God to become God. It is not a transferable attribute. Those are not transferable. Logically, just plain and simple, either you have always existed or you began to exist. If you're in the second category, you can't, you can't buy your way, you can't be promoted into the first category no matter how hard you try. So, can you earn Godship? No. You're disqualified. So, three, you are God. <laughs> What's wrong with this view? There's a lot wrong with it, isn't there? Once again, we follow the same, same lines of logic, and I'm not beating up on any, any particular person with this. I just want you to have it in your mind that if you ever hear someone say, we are God in any way, you're not. Now, where is the positive? Where is the point in which we can say we are like God? So I'll ask that question, and I, and I welcome your feedback. In what ways are we like God? We're made in his image, which means what? Anybody can jump in. What ways are we like God? In what ways are we like God? Do what? Okay, we would have to unpack that a little bit. Um, Christ, the God-man, does have a body, but that's not a necessary element of God, right? Because God is spirit. But I do like where you're going with the first one. There, there, we are spirit. God is spirit. That is part of the way we are like him, okay? There's other things in, in nature that don't have that, right? Do you think stars have spirits or souls? No. And in that way, they are not like God. And in that way, we are. What else? Any other ways that we are like God? Do what? Character? Like what? What are you thinking? Okay, okay. That's interesting. Um, there's some people who think their dogs love them. Maybe. That's a big conversation. It's a big debate. Uh, do animals have souls? You want to talk about that one? Okay, hang on. Pause, 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 pause. <laughs> Let me, let, me, let, me, let me mess with you a little bit. It's getting late in the evening and you need to have a little bit of fun. I believe that your dog has a soul. I don't have any scripture for that. So definitely don't, don't start a religion on it. Why would I argue that? Well, this is really philosophical and I'm not going to take much time, but think about this, all right? If you get rid of the soul, you are reduced to a physical object. Physical objects simply are cause and effect machines. One thing acting on another, set dominoes off. So you'd have to say if your animal doesn't have a soul, then they have no free will. And they have to like you. And they have to go this way or that way. Do with, do with, do with that what you want. <laughs> but I don't believe their soul survives death. That's where I would stop. I believe that they, have, they are rational creatures. They can make decisions between two options. I think there's, there's a rational component to it. But I'm not arguing that every animal that's ever lived will be in heaven. I, 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 the good ones will. Some would say the dogs will, but the cats won't make it. Some would say that. Oh. Yeah, I don't, I'm not a fan of that stuff. Um, 
That's, that's big stuff, big, big weird stuff. Uh, let, me, let me just say this. Is it possible that God would allow us to have experiences like that? I think so. Um, but it gets really weird really quick when we start to build too, or, or, or buy into it too much because there is, I believe, an element in which if it's not revealed here, it's not meant for us to know now. And anyone who claims to reveal that to us, we ought to have high suspicion of it. Because what God wants, to, wants us to know concerning life and the afterlife, I think is pretty good here. Anytime you talk beyond that, we're in some weird speculative stuff. So that's where I would say to that, now can you, can you write a book like that and make some good money and make some good videos and all that? I'm not judging motives, but people will buy into that. And I would just say anyone who um, I'm responsible for, I'm not saying you are, but anyone I'm responsible for, I'm going to say, don't do that. This, this is where you get your revelation on the afterlife. What God wants us to know about the afterlife is here. Anything else beyond that is dangerous speculation. So that's, that's kind of where I would end that. So three things, right? Let's get rid, let's get rid of this idea that there are many gods. There's, there's a problem with that. You can earn godship. There's a problem with that. You are God. There's a problem with that. Do you see... And when you follow just the logic of God technically being and his eternal attribute, uh, is, 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 is he's eternal, his, his attribute that he exists necessarily, and then also he is uncreated, when you look at just those three, you have disqualified all the other religions that, that, right away. Now, there may be one that I don't know and I'm not thinking of, um, absolutely possible, but this is a really quick house-cleaning process. Do you see how powerful that is? And God's revealed that in his word, these concepts. So any religion that comes out and starts to say someone became God or someone earned Godship or that you can become a God, you're already in big, big, big trouble. Does that make sense? So that's where we are with the heresy section. I'm going to leave you with these three book recommendations. Uh, the first one is Essential Truths of the Christian Faith by R.C. Sproul. Got some good stuff, and it's really light. It's, it's like one page per topic, um, really meant as a reference guide. Concise Theology by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer was the first guy in the video that we showed earlier this evening. Uh, really good reference guide. Light material, but, but very biblical. And then the third book is Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. And I'm recommending that book because it's a lighter version. It's really written for kind of the freshman college theology student. It's, it's deeper, but it's not going to get you down, you know, mired so deep. Now, if anyone knows anything about Wayne Grudem, I do want to say this thing real quick. He's been, he's been getting in a little bit of heat for uh, his belief in the eternal submission of the Son. You really want to know what that is, right? I know. But there's, in theology, no one ever is just going to let you off. We're gonna f everyone's fighting. I don't know why. We're always fighting over something. So he's in a little bit of, of heat right now, arguing over the eternal submission of the Son. If you want to look, look that up, you can. I disagree with that concept. Um, I'm not going to unpack that right now. But let me challenge you, and this is just good, I think good advice, and advice that I've gotten, and advice that I live by. Don't throw away an entire work because there's little problems. Because you'll never find a perfect work out there. 
Now, stay away from the heresies. Stay away from the heretical stuff. Absolutely. But I believe within the broader branch of Christian theology, we can learn from other denominations. We can learn from people on the other side. Uh, I have no idea where we're at. I think everyone in the world knows that I'm Reformed, and if you don't, then you're probably going to get mad at me now, but I'm Reformed. I hope you can learn something from me, and I hope I can learn from you as not being Reformed. What does that mean? I encourage you to read people who are not in your camp. It makes you stronger. It makes you understand your position better. And so just be humble, be teachable, because we're all in this journey together, I believe. And, and you know what's really cool? And I've been thinking a lot about this, and as we close, I want to I have this in our, in, our, in our minds, is that God can be glorified um, by the grain of truth <laughs> in a pile of sand of falseness. Now, what does that mean? It can mean a lot of things. And I'm not saying you should go to a church that teaches the majority of the things that they teach are wrong. That's not good. But there's a beauty in that. God can be glorified in that. Do you think that there, there are people in other countries who do not have formal theological education and training, do you think that God is not honored in their preaching to the best of their abilities with what they've got? God is honored in that, isn't he? And I would never tell someone if I went to Mexico and found some pastor who's just read a couple of books and he doesn't have much, a couple of books in the Bible, and he's doing the best he can, and he starts saying some things that are not quite right. I'm not going to pick a fight with him every point of the way. That would be ungraceful, wouldn't it? But that's part of discipleship. That's part of what we should be doing among one another, sharpening one another, challenging one another, growing, learning from one another. But there is beauty and hope and understanding that God can be glorified even when we don't got the whole picture, even when we as teachers don't have the whole picture. So I say that because Wayne Grudem, for a long, long time, has been a staple for an introductory theological book. Great, great, great stuff. If you get to reading him, you might find out, man, people are beating him up on this. And they may be rightfully or so. I'm kind of leaning towards maybe they're right in beating him up a little bit. But don't throw away the whole book. Because <laughs> he doesn't actually talk about that stuff in this one. That's kind of a soapbox for me. Any questions or comments before we close tonight? Well, I appreciate you guys, your time. This is an incredible incredible journey for us to start to unpack. What does it mean to know who God is? which will absolutely impact our understanding of our faith and absolutely under, uh, impact our understanding of ourselves and absolutely should impact the way we live our lives because the, what you believe is what you're going to practice. All right, let's pray. I thank you, Father, for this evening. I thank you that you've given us your scripture, your word. And we can come to it with assurance that what is revealed there is true and that what it's revealing to us is not simply the plan of redemption, although that is a major theme, but what it is revealing is you. God, convict us of this truth. Then when we who profess to be Christians are slow to get into your word, may we be reminded that that means we're slow to want to get to know you. And Father, may we be challenged to know our theology, be challenged to know our faith, and to have our theology and our faith biblically based, that we'd be able to defend our faith, that we'd be able to understand 
what we believe about who we think you are. And may those beliefs continue to be refined as we study your word, as we do life together in biblical community, Father. I thank you for the people in this room, and I believe that your Holy Spirit is working in our church. I'm so thankful, Father, for a group of believers who would be hungry enough to come to a class like this because they want to know you. And I pray, Father, that you bless this study. And I pray that you bless every person here. There's things that we're not going to remember. There's things that we're not going to understand. But I pray, Father, that you will help them retain the things that you want them to retain that most glorify you as you reveal yourself to us. I thank you, Father, for this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.